بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الله صل على سيدنا ونبينا ومولانا محمد ويان سورة سبع سورة الثاني فور Do nine number twelve. Was it twelve? We did um, thirteen and فلما قضينا عليه الموت ما دلهم على موته إلا دابة الأرض تأكل من سأته فلما خر تبينت الجن أن لو كانوا يعلمون الغيب ما لبثوا في العذاب المهين سليمان عليه الصلاة والسلام had the ability to subjugate the jinn kind those who lived here on earth and those who would otherwise cause havoc and trouble to human beings. There are several types of jinn according to the ahadith. We won't go into that here. So these uh, jinn kind were used to help Suleiman build buildings as mentioned in the previous ayah and do a lot of manual work which would otherwise be difficult for human beings to do. (coughs) Since they are made of fire, as Iblis says, and also the Quran says, وَخَلَقَ الْجَانَّ مِنْ مَارِجٍ مِنْ نَارٍ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created this species to live on earth with human beings. So they coexist. They are not apparent to us, and that's why they're called jinn. Jinn meaning something that's hidden. And we should not try to unhide them. <laughs> Bring them into our existence. That is not sunnah. Some of them are good people, and some of them are not so good people. So in the jinn kind, they are also obligated to follow the sharia and follow the sunnah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So they are obliga- obligated to that. They pray and they fast and whatever they do. So we see here that Suleiman was given this unique ability to control them, to subjugate them and also to use them for his needs and the needs of the Ummah, the needs of the, uh, the Sultanah, if you want to call it that, his kingdom, where he would travel everywhere. <coughs> Some of these jinn were rebels, because they have a rebellious nature also within them. The understanding that the Arabs had about the jinn that they would be able to invoke 
and supplicate to the jinns and bring about news in the sense of fortune telling and see the future and all of that. So the pagan Arabs believed this, that Muhammad maybe has a jinn with him or this and that. So they would frequently address this issue amongst themselves and to the Sahaba and also other people outside of the Muslim community were able to communicate with the jinn kind. And there is evidence that that is possible. The Prophet ﷺ said that you should not believe in a soothsayer, a fortune teller. If you do, then you have disbelieved in what Muhammad ﷺ has brought. And then another hadith says that the reason for that is that they will give you 99 lies and one issue that is truthful. So 99% of whatever they say and information they give is all lies. So this is about (coughs) now keeping them where they belong. So the issue here in this ayah is about ilmul ghayb, knowledge of the unseen. So in this uh, discussion, knowledge of the unseen starts with knowledge of what someone's going to do tomorrow. No nafs, no soul knows what he or she is going to do tomorrow. You may plan that you are going to do this tomorrow, inshallah. But you don't know what you're going to do tomorrow. And that's the truth. You don't know what's going to happen at work, or at school, or in the house, or whatever. So the Qur'an wants the human being to now plan and organize, but at the same time, not to conclude that this is definite. So tomorrow is never definite. But you must plan for the, for the morrow, as the Qur'an says. That you look towards what you're going to do in the morrow. In the, in the tomorrow. So once you have this ability... Uh, to understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may and does change what you think might be the future. And then because the future is part of the ghayb, the unknown, the unseen. The weatherman can give you a forecast and predict that it could rain tomorrow. And usually nowadays it does. Those are very accurate nowadays. And sometimes once in a year, it doesn't happen the way they say. <laughs> right. Because that is now, it's not 100% accurate. And so on. So, if you want to know, if you want to have an edge over other people, and you want to dictate how the future should be, then that is, you know, that's manipulation. And that's being very clever or sly and shrewd and being a military genius or you know, a good politician or a ruthless ruler, whatever. So a man's ability to forecast the future is based on experimentation, experience and empirical knowledge and everything else. Here, the purpose of this ayah 
Wallahalam, and the Prophet mentioned this, is that we must understand Allah only gives information uh, according to how much He wants to give information to any human being, any species. So if Allah has given you the ability to forecast the stock market or the future events in, in, in the climate in America, which is based on previous records or whatever, that, that's one thing. That is through your earning. That is through your knowledge and your due diligence and everything else. Yeah, that is fine. But uh, if you want to predict the future because you know that God wants this to happen, then that is wrong. At the human level, if you're going to use means and methods by which you can say this is what the trend is and this is is probably what's going to happen tomorrow and the next year, the next two or three years. You've based this speculation on your knowledge of how human beings are, how the market works or how history has been in 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 the past and you say this is your opinion, understanding, that's fine. If you say that this is what God is going to do, that's not fine. Right? Unless you have knowledge through wahi that if you you commit this act, this happens. And if you commit commit this act, this happens. Like the Prophet said that when there's plenty of zina in the world, there will be increased poverty. So that's, that's now through wahi. So you're not forecasting that. You are explaining what what he says. That's not a forecast. That's not a prediction. That is doing what? Believing what the Prophet said and applying it to your condition and your situation, your circumstance. You inform people. That is ikhbar. That is informing. That is not you're predicting the future. Like a doctor tells you, you you have this amount of cholesterol, this amount of sugar, you're going to (laughs) die. Right. If you don't take care of it. That's not predicting the future. Well, that's already something that is now well documented. And usually things happen that way too. With a good 20% chance. It won't happen. But with Wahi, when the Prophet ﷺ said this, there is no doubt that it does happen. So, because that is now Bil Ghaib. That knowledge came from the unseen, from Wahi. Bil Ghaib. Yep. So, people say that uh, you can use the elements and the tools of the jinn in order to predict the future and in order to tell people this way you should go and not go and, you know, literally use a crystal ball and plan your life this way. So, the Quran doesn't allow that, meaning that Islam doesn't allow this and if you go to a fortune teller, soothsayer, and people are using your your astrology, yeah, your, the moon, the sun, the stars, and your constellations that you are that you were born in these months, or you are you part of the Aries, or whatever. And based on this, this is what's going to happen. Maybe you shouldn't do this, and so on. Right? Or you should go. It is favorable for you to do this based on your astrology, not astronomy, your astrology. So the Quran and the Hadith and the Sunnahs, they, they all say this is kufr. Uh, this is not allowed. You can't do that. You can't predict your future this way. As if it's going to happen the way. So likewise, going to a card reader, right, a psychic, all of that is no good. 
So the Quran uses this story, mentioned this ayah, to prove this, that the jinn doesn't know too much. The jinn doesn't know as much as you think the jinn knows, because that ghaib, the knowledge of the ghaib, is only in Allah's hands, and he may give people that knowledge according to how much he wants to. That his ghaib, he doesn't reveal to anybody. Except the one whom he chooses and likes from the Rasul. Meaning whether it's a Rasul which is an angel or a Rasul that's a human being. So this is what happened. So as Sallallahu was using these types of jinn, he asked them to construct for him a glass uh, mihrab. A place where he would pray Salat. And then around his prayer area, they built him a glass dome so that he could see what they were doing, observing what they were doing. This is what happened. Sulaiman was a dedicated servant of Allah, which I mentioned last week. He and his father were always in ibadah. They would make tasbih of Allah, they would do Salat and other surah, as you will see in Surah Saad. They're very dedicated to their ibadah, their worship, even though they ruled people and the jinn and so on. Suleiman Islam at that time used a stick, a walking stick, to lean on as he was praying. So he stood up for prayer, for salat, and he was leaning on the stick. And then what happened was that during his salat, uh, he was taken away into the other world. As the sciences. So when we had decreed upon him death, Suleiman was standing in prayer, and we decreed upon him death. Death came to him. مَا دَلَّهُمْ عَلَى مَوْتِهِ That nothing gave them, meaning the jinn, any news of his death. مَا Nothing indicated to them that his death had occurred. Or he was no longer here in this world, if you want to say, the prophets don't die the way that we die. You want to say that. That nothing informed them, suggested to them, that this had occurred. Why is this relevant? Because they were subjugated by the command of Suleiman Islam, and he was standing there, and he wanted the glass around him to see and observe whether they're doing the work or not. And he was standing there for a very, very long time. According to the Fasil, it differs so many days, so many hours, whatever. But if the jinn knew that this is what's happening to Suleiman inside the glass, then they would have cut loose their shackles and their chains, and they would have ran away from there, and they would have caused havoc the way they usually would. The rebels. Now, if you're a slave and you have a master and he's ruthless and the master dies, then you're not going to remain in the plantation that long. He's dead. I'm out of here. No? So with these jinns, they were still working. They were looking at him 
And they thought he was still praying because the, the, the stick was still there. And if he died, the stick would not be there. Right? So now they're saying he's still there. And the next morning he was still there. And the next week he was still there. How do you know this? This is from the next part of the eye. إِلَّا دَابَّةُ الْأَرْضِ تَأْكُلُ مِنْ سَأَةَهِ مِنْ سَأَةَهِ is the stick. Meaning the staff upon which he would lean in order to pray and so on. So what happened is that the woodworm, دَابَّةُ الْأَرْضِ the woodworm now started to peck at and eat up and devour the wooden stick. And how long do you think that process takes? Not a few hours, I would say. A few days, maybe. A few weeks. You stood there. <laughs> so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserves the body of a Nabi, which is mentioned in Hadith, and the body doesn't decompose. So the body is intact. It has the same momentum. So, except what happens is that the, the, the body will not fall, but only when the, the woodworms finally went into the cane, and then the cane broke. When the cane broke, then he fell. Right? Now, this process took a few days, weeks, we don't know. However long it took, in that time, the jinn were still working for Suleiman outside, believing that he's still alive. So this means that the jinn doesn't know even what's in front of them. Allah is saying that had they known the ghaib, ma fil they have not have remained in this disgrace or humiliating torment and punishment. Why would they? So any idea that uh, human beings may use the jinn to facilitate the future and to facilitate life, has been removed by this one story in the Qur'an, which says that Suleiman, who ruled and governed the jinn, uh, even his jinn, who were smart also, they were not able to see what's in front of their eyes, never mind see what's beyond their eyes. Allah didn't want them to. It's only when Allah wants people to see and observe, that they will see and observe, in the cosmos. When he doesn't want, then he won't even allow a Nabi to see and observe what's coming, what's not coming, etc. If he does, he'll inform him. And if he doesn't, he won't inform him. And uh, this is the way our Aqidah is based, that knowledge of the ghaib, knowledge of the unseen, always remains in the absolute control of Allah, and when he releases some portion of that knowledge, it is only by divine design, not because human beings or other species inherently access that knowledge. Right. So, neither Rasul nor Jinn inherently access the knowledge of the other world or the unseen. If knowledge is given, is given by Allah. That's your Aqeedah. Now, the fact that Suleiman was informed of events and things uh, in his life, as we discussed in Surah Al-Namal, that the bird came, the hood hood, 
right? The hoodhood is now physical. It has blood and flesh and bone and everything in it. And it gave Suleiman information, news about the people of Sabah, which was mentioned next. People of Sheba. Not the same time, necessarily, but definitely the same people. So we see here the Quran correlates the issue of hoodhood, a scouting bird, being able to fly and physically observe and uh, bring intelligence to Suleiman through the human process. Whereas the jinn, who are non-human, weren't able to even deduce, never mind, know, that Suleiman is no longer with us. To show the discrepancy between what is the truth and what is the false aqidah and claims of soothsayers and fortune tellers and anyone else who wants to believe in the paranormal and the whatever, the ESP factor extrasensory perception factor that you can somehow make uh, a device or a human device with the human mind whereby you're going to be able to see and predict the future. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that this is against Tawheed. But if you want to summarize this in the context of hamd and praise to Allah it is that Prophet their effects continue even though they're no longer part of this worldly system. So the impact of Suleiman's rule upon the jinn extended post his leaving this world, which is another miracle, another mu'ajizah. That, uh, as you will see in Surah Sa'd, he asked Allah, Rabbi habli hukman, la yambaghi li ahadim bi'ba'li, Allah grant me a kingdom that is not fitting for anyone after me. So this is a kingdom where his rule and authority was established over the jinn, even though the jinn could have just left him to show that the prophets do control uh, just by being there. Just by their physical body being there, they have this uh, you know, ability to control others. And they, started, they continued working on the buildings and etc., whatever they were doing. This is one, that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hamd and praise. We say this is Allah's favor upon Suleiman And secondly, the point is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as mentioned in the previous ayat in the beginning, He knows everything that comes into the earth, He knows everything that goes to the heavens, and so on. That knowledge, microscopic knowledge, He does not give to anybody until and unless He wills them to know. So when human beings want to discover something, it's because Allah wants them to discover. It's Allah's now uh, eternal ability to inform them and to teach them. With the, obviously, assistance of the human action and interaction itself. If you don't do the necessary work, you will not be informed of these issues that are with us now through science and technology. Whether that's good or bad, that's, that's a different question. Anyway, so we, we see that Allah gave Dawood the ability to subjugate mountains and iron and iron ore and also to have the birds sing with him in chorus. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave Dawood and Sulaiman the ability to worship him in so many different ways and 
gave Suleiman the ability to control the, bo- the birds, the human beings, and also the jinn kind, so that uh, people who read this surah will know that when you establish peace and justice, law and order, authority on earth, then it's not at the expense of serving Allah. It's because you serve Allah that you maintain your control. What is Suleiman still doing as he left this world? He's still in prayer. <laughs> and because he's in prayer, okay, the visible image and picture of a Nabi being in prayer does what? Controls the jinn. So the prayer now gives you this ability, meaning if you want to move away from everything else that you suspect in your life, pray. Do salat. Salat will take care of your issues and so on. Which is very unique. Anyway. Thus, as far as the Ilmul Ghaib issue comes, Ilmul Ghaib is a very, very large discussion in Islam, Islam, Aqidah and so on. But this is what's relevant to this ayah. لَقَدْ كَانَ لِسَبَئٍ فِي مَسْكَنِهِمْ آيَةٍ جَنَّتَانِ عَنْ يَمِينٍ وَشِمَانٍ كُلُوا مِنْ رِزْقِ رَبِّكُمْ وَشْكُرُوا لَهِ بَلْدَةٌ طَيِّبَةٌ وَرَبٌ غَفُورٌ Amazing insights of the Quran into how to develop a civilization and how to build your you know, ideal city. What is the ideal city or the ideal state if you want to replace the word city with what is now the nation state in our times? What is the ideal there? So the Quran gives this amazing insight into how to benefit from Allah's ni'mah. The worldly ni'mah. The surah, as I said, revolves around two moral issues. One is shukr and the other is sabr. This ayah is about shukr and the next ayah is about the lack of sabr and the lack of shukr, as you will see uh, when it climaxes. Indeed, in sabr, meaning in the people of sabr, there is for you in their dwellings an ayah, a lesson, a important, an example, something that is relevant and significant to you. لَقَدْ كَانَ لِسَبَعٍ Saba is the name of the town or the people of the town, Sheba, in Yemen. So we know this and the historical documentation has been verified by so many different Masirun. We don't need to get into that. But there was a community and a civilization there in Yemen that is named Saba. Saba, the Arabic word for Sheba. Here Allah says, there's definitely a lesson for you, an ayah, a revelation for you in their dwellings. Fi maskanihim. In their dwellings. Maskan. Where they lived. The place where they lived. The place where they sought sukun. From the word sakana. That you want peace and security and sukun where you live. So the Quran uses this word to explain first and foremost that when you have a home, there must be sukun. When you have a town, there must be sukun. Sukun comes on the back of uh, security, tranquility and peace 
law and order, and so on. For that, you need infrastructure. And infrastructure now gives you the ability to design. Your civil engineers will help you uh, do all of this, that you must make everything um, with the focus that you want people to live comfortably. Sulaiman Sukun, which is an ayah. You can't knock that. You say, well, this is dunya. Allah says, no, it is dunya, but you need to live in the dunya. <laughs> you can't have people living where there's a lot of mud and there's no running water or there's no hygiene and there are no provisions for good food and, you know, an environment where there are no pollutants and all of that. Safety issues, security issues. Whatever you see nowadays is what the people of Sabah had. They had this ability to live in sukoon with peace and security and tranquility. And then Allah subhanahu says, how was that? Jannatan. They had two huge gardens and orchards. Ayyamini wa shiman. On the right, or if you want to call it geographically on the south. And then on the north, which might make more sense. So the dwellings were in the middle. And then you had now gardens and orchards and your produce on the north side and the south side, the south side and the north side of the town, which was built in such a way that people could live in peace and so on. Right. Now, you, you look at this and you say, okay, when you want to create avenues and boulevards and everything else that looks nice, very pretty and attractive, and all of that good stuff where you know, you, you, you enable the citizen of the town, of the city to not only live but also produce and cultivate and to earn. And they participate in all of this. And then there are some factors that you need to appreciate as part of your shukr. rabbikum. Allah subhanahu wa said to them in the words or in the, the, the voice of the queen, cosmos, not in the voice of sharia or law, that you must eat from the risk of your Lord, meaning it's a natural phenomenon. When you live in this type of environment and this setting and dwelling where it's every very fertile and lush and is attractive and comfortable, what are you going to do? You're going to enjoy it, right? Kulu washrabu. You don't eat and drink. From what? Rabbikum. From the risk of your Lord. This is important. The word Rabb here. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala provides you, first of all, the land, and then the climate and the geography, and then gives you the mind and the ability to, to, to first of all, create this, to develop this, engineer this town and city, and then you're able to cultivate and your economy is good. And everyone is happy. So this is important that we understand the need for creating infrastructure within which upon which you can actually sustain yourselves in a very nice way. And then the Shari portion of this was the Islamic portion is Washkuru Be grateful. 
make shukr. How do you make shukr the way Dawood and Suleiman did? It is through your ibadah. It is through your, uh, make, uh, your, your altruism. Okay? Your sukha and your sukha, your generosity and your ability to help yourself and to other, help others and your ability to follow law and order and your desire to make sure there's no commotion, chaos in the town, in the city. Be grateful to him. When you have a ni'mah, then you have to acknowledge that it's a ni'mah, then you have to maintain the ni'mah. So if the ni'mah is now fruits of your labor, then maintain them. How do you maintain them? You can't maintain them. There's violence everywhere. And there's no peace and security everywhere. Washkurullah includes this. Shukr means you use the name Allah has given you in a way that is constructive and productive, not in a way that's destructive and detrimental. Yeah. Then the final okay, word or the statement in, the, in this ayah is baldatun tayyibah. That the ideal town for us to now compare is a Tayyiba. It must be a very, very beautiful town. Not an ugly town. Not something that's haphazard, unorganized. Okay? It's totally unruly, unkempt. It has to be pleasant. It must appeal to you, your senses. It must appeal to your sense of imagination. It must appeal to your sense of uh, structure and sense of uh, being able to do what you need to do in this balda. Balda tun Very pure. Tayyib also means pure. So uh, from this you may develop your theories of uh, good living. The town and the city in which you live must be conducive for good living. And if good living is not uh, there, then uh, you must think of how to make it good. You can't live in an environment that is not good. That is not not good. I mean, tayyib, the opposite. Tayyib is khabith, filthy and dirty. Um, you know, very, very uh, satanic. Khabith. So we, we see that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is showing the reader of the Qur'an that the ayah in dwellings and in cities and towns is this baldatun tayyibah. Now when you think of how Muslims created their towns and cities and villages, you see that they follow this. Right? If you travel to Muslim countries, wherever you went, in Muslim countries you'll see this, oh tayyibah. They, they have this magical ability to build towns that are remarkable and very pleasant and very hospitable. And the intricate works and designs in their architecture, in their food and their clothing, and in their roads and, and their plumbing and everything else you see. And the first thing they think of is that everything must look nice and secondly, it must be pure and clean hygiene, where hygiene was the basis upon which they built their towns. The first thing that strikes you in the picture is what? That there's a fountain outside. <laughs> now, you need the fountain because you have to use the water and you need to make wudu and you need to make ghusl and so on. This is a part of your hygiene. So, in the, the, the prophetic construct of a city and a town, it depends, it's built around, it depends on the human being being hygienic. Not just the town being hygienic, but also what? 
The human being must be hygienic. You can't have the town being hygienic and the inhabitants of the town being the other way. Right. So the Prophet said, as far as human hygiene, he said, these are khisalu fitra. Khamsumil fitra. These are part of your fitra, your natural disposition. That you're going to gargle, you're going to brush your teeth, siwak. Siwak is part of the fitra. Okay, you're going to clean your nose, you're going to make sure that you have certain types of hair that's removed. So your physical hygiene is not required that you don't require Sharia to tell you this is what Allah wants you to do. You as a human being must know instinctively that this is what you should do. That's called fitrah. Right? Based on the human fitrah now, my body is clean. My mind should be clean. And my clothing should be clean. The place where I worship should be clean. Which are what? Essentials and prerequisites to your salat. You've all done this, right? In your Islam Fiqh 101. How many years ago? Your body must be clean. The clothes that you wear, they must be clean. The place where you pray, that must be clean. Without these three, uh, your salat is not valid, period. So your personal hygiene is very important for ibadah. You're not going to make shukr to Allah if you don't have these types of hygiene being incorporated and, uh, you know, uh, built into your thinking system, into your life. Right. Then you have the surroundings. They must be pure and hygienic. So now, how, how do you keep yourself clean? You need water. And you can't make wudu from stagnant water, right? Or also from stagnant water. Maybe I'll make wudu and get away with it. But the Fuqaha are very careful and they said, you need running water. Water must be pure and if there's any mouse that falls into your water, you have to make it hygienic again by taking out 20 buckets. It's a ruling fiqh. They didn't tolerate filth. Right. That is based on your fiqh. Now you made it part of your law, your civilizational law, so that you had behaved this way. Even a mouse, if it fell, a rat fell. Depending on the size of the animal, you took out more or less buckets and buckets, and sometimes if the dead animal's there, you have to take out everything from the well, because that is now unfilthy and hygienic. It is now ghair tahir. It's not tayyib anymore. So the Muslim fuqaha understood from the tahar of the Prophet and this is the way we need to build towns and villages and communities. It is based on the need for us to exercise our right to pray freely, worship Allah freely. But that's not possible if you don't have these. And these come at a price, with a price. It's not easy. In those days, it's easy to build a fountain where you had running water. <laughs> First of all, you needed the engineering skill. Right? That cost time and money and everything else. Then you need the, the material. And then you need the imagination with which you're going to present this with Ihsan. So you have to look nice. You have to feel nice. That you, if you're going to now do something, you must believe that it's tayyib and not something that's khabith. Anyway, so anyway, this was the Muslim mindset and the psyche upon which uh, the Muslim civilization now promoted itself 
And it's a reflection of this ayah. Surah Sabah. Baratun Tayyibah. Everything had to be Tayyib, meaning it could not be filthy. So if you have a civilization where the human being is pure and hygienic, and the places are pure and hygienic, then that's a good civilization. And if you have one, not the other, it's not Tayyib yet. You have to make it Tayyib. Where the place is hygienic, but the people aren't. Then you know what comes, and you know what doesn't come. So that's the first thing. That the surroundings, the, 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 the place where you live, must be conducive for ibadah. And ibadah requires that you are tayyib physically in you and around you. The second thing, وَرَبُّنْ Who rules you? Who governs you? Who takes care of your affairs? The Rabb. So the word Rabb here doesn't refer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It refers to the town, now organizer, the chief, the leader, the ruler, the governor, whatever it is, the mayor. Whoever is now in, in charge of law and order and respectable living is called the Rabb here, as the word Rabb is used. In the Quran, for Rabbu Dar, Yusuf says about his uh, now host that he is my Rabb, my Lord, because he has taken care of me. So here, the Rabb means the Rabb of the town, the Rabb of the city. So who is the Rabb of the city? Your mayor, your governor, the village people, whatever, the village itself. These should be Ghafoor. So first of all, they should be Rabb meaning that they're willing to work with you and for you, and they're willing to develop you and the town, both. They're inherent in the word Rabb. They're willing to develop you. That's what the word Rabb means. Right. You are Allahumma rabbirhamuhuma kama rabbayani sagira that you are a Rabb for your children. Why are you called a Rabb there in the Quran? Because you are investing in your children to develop them along with your life. So you develop you and you develop them. Likewise, any town, any city, any country, the ruler and whoever's in charge, the government must be willing to invest in you and develop you so that you reach your term and you reach your potential. If that's not there, then that person is not your rub. It's for something else. Whichever word you want to think of. Now, unfortunately, throughout the world, not just here, but throughout the world, very few people can say that they are the citizens of someone who is now ruling as a Rabb. Very few. If there are, that's great. Allah give us all this type of ruler and leader where they're willing to invest in everybody so that you have this system where you develop the child from birth until the person dies and you have this facility. Uh, that you, you infrastructure that with which you facilitate life in every area from prenatal care all the way to burial and post burial sometimes. That's the Rabb. Right? And who is that? In our tradition, that is the Prophet that is the Abu Bakr and Omar Uthman Ali, that they helped the Ummah develop the infrastructure. We are not allowed to destroy our own infrastructure that is un-Islamic. Right? Because that, that then 
that uh, in a that disables the the rub of the community from doing his job. So you can't blow down blow up houses and masjid because you want a revolution. You don't destroy your own infrastructure because that's a sign of Allah's punishment with the people of Khaybar. Yukhribuna buyutahum bi'aydihim that they destroyed their hand, their buildings with their own hands. We don't do that. We built this through hard work because we wanted whoever's ruling to be uh, able to facilitate life for us that our salat is valid, our zakat is valid, our psalm is valid and our ability to perform hajj and that's all made easy for us and upon which infrastructure, the infrastructure of the dunya. So now you have food, clothing, uh, labor, travel, education, whatever it is must be a prerogative of the rabb of the, the ruler of the land and the ruler of the country or the town or society and you don't override that because you disagree with some of his policies. You may respond to some of his policies and you may demonstrate, you may protest, you may give nasiha, but you can't burn down the building you built <laughs> in the name of saying that we disagree with everybody. You don't do that. So the word Rabb here incorporates everything that you need in a ruler who facilitates life for everybody according to whatever it is that they believe in without causing too much harm to anybody's ego. So it's a very loaded word. How the Quran mentions this, that in this Sabah, in the people of Sheba, there's an ayah, there's a revelation for you that at one point of time in their history, they had this beautiful town and city where it was lush, fertile, it was pleasant, you had gardens and orchards on both sides, you had people working and producing and they were eating the best food because they lived in a very pure town with a very ghafoor, rub, forgiving, tolerating and forgiving, accommodating and conceding at the same time he or she would be able to do what it takes in order to make sure there's law and order. You cannot forgive if there's chaos committed by the people who you want to forgive. That's just part of um, smart politics, I guess, smart rules of governance. So there you need a system whereby you have a penal code. Why do you need the penal code? Why do you need the police? Because that's part of your forgiveness that you don't want to destroy these people so that you, you pr- imprison them so that you don't destroy them. So imprisoning people for whatever they are guilty of is part of your forgiveness program. That's why it's called correctional facilities. <laughs> right? Not destructive facilities. Even in this terminology, it's correctional. Your, your forgiveness is you want to reform them. It's a reformation program. Is not necessarily just the uh, program for punishing people. So there you do, obviously, in mainstream America, these discussions go on every day, every week. Not only in the media, but where it, ma- where it matters and where it counts. And so your philosophy is that you must make sure that you provide and facilitate life for people. At the same time, you must not allow others to destroy that facilitation. That's part of your hufran. So now you don't need a weak leader, you need a strong leader, and all of that discussion that happens with your political science and everything else. That is now, unfortunately, history at the moment. Okay.
Yeah. So this is a sign from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that this is a revelation and we want to see that uh, the facilitators enable the citizen to worship Allah and to be grateful to Allah for their services, for their inamat, their ni'mah and their blessings. And that's how we see this part of the story in front of us. The second part of the story is uh, what happens when you don't. When you reject Allah's inamat and blessings and you stop worshipping Allah and you stop thanking Allah and you stop doing what Allah wants you to do in this great civilization. It's the same dwelling. Things change because the people change. So it's not necessarily just the infrastructure and the dwellings, it's also the people. As I said, you need your people to be hygienic first and then you create a hygienic surrounding around you. If you have a hygienic surrounding around you and you have unhygienic people, that's not dawdatun tayyibah. Likewise, if you have an infrastructure and a civilization that has all the infrastructure, but people are not uh, worshipping Allah the way they should or thanking Allah for the inamat, then that's likewise not a good civilization to follow and to copy. Which is the second part of the story. Inshallah, we'll do that next week. جزاكم الله خير سبحان الله الحمد لله سبحان الله الحمد لله